About this time every year, uh, our attention turns to the solemn anniversary of 9-11. It's a moment when we all take time to reflect on those who gave their lives that day. It seems weird for those of us who remember it, what we promised ourselves we would do. Those who paid the ultimate sacrifice in the years to come. Those who went to war. How are we treating them? Defending our liberties in places like uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. And now here we are, 18 years later, we find ourselves seemingly in a state of permanent war. We're warned that the Islamic State is poised to make a comeback. We watch as the crescent of Iranian influence extends its long shadow. And in Afghanistan, our leaders are now negotiating the terms of peace with the Taliban, which I thought we had wiped out at one point. Well, I want to tell you about a new film that is out, ties all of this together. It's called Mosul. It is the story of the last battle of the Iraq war, documenting the 2016-2017 fight against ISIS in Iraq's second largest city. It's directed actually by a CIA officer, Danielle Gabrielle. Mosul is the name of this film. It's much more than a war story. It is a journey that will take you up the Tigris River right into the heart of darkness of the ISIS caliphate, revealing an apocalyptic battle against two unyielding enemies, the violent Islamic extremism and the sectarian mistrust and hatred that will remain long after all of the politicians declare victory. It's available now on iTunes or Amazon Vimeo. Just visit www.mosul-film.com. Today's podcast guest has chalked out a reputation as an unrelenting conservative voice in media at a time when conservative voices are routinely exiled from the media. He does a lot of work with us at The Blaze, and you might have seen him on Blaze TV. He's been exiled. That's why we have him. We're kind of the island of misfit toys. In 2018, he was hired at The Atlantic, only to be fired three days later for a tweet he posted or something he said in a speech in 2014. It was taken out of context, but that didn't matter. Currently, he is a correspondent for the National Review, and his articles are often intricate, witty, and spontaneous. The political guide, uh, the politically incorrect guide to socialism, the dependency agenda, the case against Trump, and his most recent book, The Smallest Minority, Independent Thinking in the Age of Mob Politics. He dives into some of the most pressing issues of our time, and he does it without blinking. It's not a PG-13 book. It may not even be a rated R book. We begin there with Kevin Williamson. All right. So, Kevin, <laughs> there's so much of this book I'd like to read. OK, but uh, it's a family show. <laughs> well, not really, it's but family I'm a family man. This is not a family book. It's not one for the kids. I no. mean, uh, just in your first chapter, uh, the if you've ever been if you've ever been to the monkey house in one of those awful downscale zoos that smell very intensely the way you imagine that Bernie Sanders probably smells faintly you know what monkeys these particular monkeys are like they not a family part of this episode they jerk off fling poo all over every day generally using the same hand for both no they fling poo all day 
generally using the same hand for both, and they don't do a hell of a lot else unless there's McDonald's. All day, jerk off, fling, poo, jerk off, fling, poo, jerk, fling, jerk, fling. Twitter, basically. And after about 300,000 years of atomically modern uh, HSAP, uh, there, there, here we are again. Monkeys, albeit monkeys with Wi-Fi. You can try being human beings. You could. You could try a little freedom on for size, see how it fits, see how it feels. But you're not going to. We both know that. Jerk off, fling, poo, jerk off, fling, poo, jerk, fling, jerk, fling. I hate monkeys. But this is their story. Yes. <laughs> when you read this, and I'm going to get into um, uh, some of this, you compare pretty much everybody to monkeys. I got a monkey theme in the book. Yeah. <laughs> there is a monkey theme. Um, we got started off, uh, you mentioned earlier, um, I first started working in newspapers in India, and I was living in Delhi. And the city is just covered up by monkeys, partly having to do with the fact that there's a temple there. It's a Hanuman temple, and you can't mess with monkeys. And people would bring offerings, you know, the monkeys. And the people who don't know what they're doing, of course, bring them bananas and, and fruit and stuff. But what they really like is McDonald's. And I covered the opening of the first McDonald's, actually, in India, which was a very fun story to uh, to work on. And so it's just a, a scene that's still in my head of these, you know, monkeys eating Happy Meals and uh, pilgrims and stuff and thinking that's a little bit like modern life in the United States, I think. And uh, you know, just swing in, grab the food. Yeah, monkeys kind of are the worst. And uh, but they, occasionally they kill somebody there. You know, they yeah, cause yeah. problems. Or I was in our office one day there and it was in a basement and just the lights flicker for a second. And I hear, eh! and this like, flaming monkey goes shooting past the window, and it had chewed through the power main, apparently. And I uh, don't know why it was chewing through the power main, but it caused an electricity outage for about four and a half hours, as I recall, which is a pain when you're in the newspaper business. It's hard to right. get much done. Right. So you think that's who we are now? I think that uh, social media doesn't change who we are, it reveals who we are. It's like alcohol. Alcohol doesn't make you a jerk. You are already a jerk. Um, it just took away your inhibitions. And um, that is confessional, by our, the way. Yeah, right but, but aren't our inhibitions, I'm happy to say I was a nicer guy when I was drunk. Uh, <laughs> uh, aren't our in inhibitions um, what make us human in some regard? And the, the things that we're like, we have inside, and we're like, I think no, our I don't think I should, you know, fling poop and jerk off, fling, jerk, fling, jerk. I don't think I should do that. I think our inhibitions are what make us better than human. I think our inhibitions <laughs> are, are a gift from God. Right. Um, anything. Well, individuals are a lot like governments, right? That you want uh, you want divisions of powers and you want stops on things. And anything that stops me, especially, but but any other person. But I'll take myself as a good example of this. Anything that stops me from doing what exactly I want right then at the moment where it comes into my head is a good thing. Anything that stops that from happening is a good thing. And uh, the structure of social media, you know, psychologically, is that it, it rewards theatricality and hysteria and invective and stuff, but it does it immediately. And so people have a tendency to just, uh, you know, hit that button, post, get that feedback, and so did you hate me on Fox? You must have hated me on Fox because that was a lot of theatrics. Yeah, um, I never, I, you know, I was on the last episode of your Fox News show. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, and um, I. Uh, what did we talk about? You, well, you, you ended up at the blackboard. Yeah, and when, when Glenn goes to the blackboard, I always kind of wanted to go do something else. But um, <laughs> to be honest, um, I've never watched a Fox News show all the way through. 
Really? Uh, not one. I've never watched any of those shows all the way through, except for the ones that I've been on all the way through. It's because you just don't watch. You don't watch. I don't watch a lot of television. Cable um, TV especially. Well, I, I, I mean, I watch Game of Thrones and yeah, uh, you know, Breaking I mean, Bad cable and stuff TV. like that. I don't watch the I mean, TV sorry, news. Yeah. Cable TV news. I don't know. Um, I think it's predictable and useless. And uh, yeah, becoming I mean, much more so. Yeah, and it's it doesn't bring out the best in people. Like uh, I knew Chris Hayes a little bit uh, before he had his own show and all that sort of stuff. And TV has just taken thirty points off that guy's IQ. Um, you know, just the way he presents himself. The, uh, the well, the, and the book is about tribalism, and TV cable news is about tribalism. Yeah, it's about this is our team. Here's how we uh, here's how we encourage our team. Here's the cheers for our team. Here's all that stuff. And I think that and here's especially why the other team is bad. And that's where the real ritual of all this is. It's uh, this is Old Testament stuff. It's like a scapegoat ritual. It's the ritual and ceremony of hating people in public together. That's what Twitter is really for, and that's what Facebook is really for. And to some extent, cable news and some talk radio is really for that. It's let's abominate the people on the other side together as this communal team-building exercise that gives us a sense that we belong to one another, that we're part of something significant and important, and that we are affirming our values in some sort of proactive way that really matters. That's an illusion, um, none of this stuff really matters that much. Um, there was a great, actually, this is maybe right around the time when you were first on Fox. Um, there was a poll that I found very heartening where they're asking people about various TV pundits. And it's old enough that Keith Olbermann was on the list. So I remember Keith Olbermann being on the list. And with the exception of Rush Limbaugh, the most common answer in every category wasn't trust him, don't trust him, like him, don't like him. The most common answer was don't. never heard of him. Yeah. Um, and most people don't know about this stuff. Um, we who work in the media tend to get worked up about these intramedia things that happen sometimes. So when I went through the nonsense with the Atlantic, you know, there are columns in the New York Times and columns in the Washington Post and all that sort of stuff. And uh, two weeks after I got fired, I, I called my dad and he's like, so how's the new job going? Wow. Never heard a word about it. No one knew. No one cared. Yeah. Um, we get real excited about a lot of little things that matter to people who work. In news or in media or in television or in politics. But just, it doesn't really affect the outside world that much. It's a game. I was just in uh, Australia mm. and there wasn't not one, not one place that I walk into. Not a hotel lobby, not a restaurant, bar, um, airport. No one had cable news on that was just kind of playing. Oh yeah, they'd have they'd have sport. Apparently, sports and horse racing running all the time in Australia. You'd have sports, but no cable news. Yeah, and uh, while you still have Twitter and Facebook and everything else, there's something to that where we are glued in. When I when I was over there, I was just minding my own business and uh, doing a you know a charity thing over there, and uh, I came back and I was like, "What's happening?" Because I mean, none of it. None of it's changed, right? I mean, yeah. it's the same crap. We get so wound up in it, and I don't know where the the balance is on what's important and what's not, what's worth fighting for, and then what's worth leaving alone because I got to live. Yeah. You know, the only uh, foreign language I ever studied in school was Latin. So unless I happen to be at the Vatican, if I'm in a non-English-speaking place— I don't understand the news or people's conversations, mm-hmm. things like that. And it's such a relief. I just love, I love being in countries where I can't understand people's conversations. I can't understand the news. And, it was, and you can just kind of be alone with your own thoughts again right. for a while. And it's kind of, um, you know, it was, it was real. I hate to say this because I really like Australia. Yeah. 
I would live in Australia if, you know, and I would live there comfortably, not with all the socialism and all the, but it's not my country. Right. So I wouldn't care. I mean, they could go crazy in parliament and be like, all right, well, I'll just move back. And they're screwing up their country, not my country. So it wouldn't be the same when you're here and you're like, wait, 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 that's going to hurt. That's going to leave a mark. And it's your country. How do you how do you know what's important? What's to what you engage in, what you don't? Yeah, I think that. Um, well, anything that can be summed up in five seconds on Twitter and the answer to which is people on the other side are evil and we're good. You no. got it wrong. Yeah, um, there are there aren't any real simple answers to things. I have a thing I jokingly call Williamson's first law of politics, which is that everything is simple when you don't know a thing about it. Uh, gerund deleted there. And uh, and it's true. Everything is simple when you know anything about it. If you get people who are actually subject area experts in something and talk to them about it, nothing's ever simple. Nothing's ever cut and dry. They're always very qualified about their opinions. You know, what's interesting. You get like Paul Krugman. You, know, you get Paul Krugman writing or talking about his actual area of academic mm-hmm. expertise. Very interesting guy. Um, his New York Times column could be written by a monkey. Um, you know, and it may be for all I know. Back to the monkeys. Back to the monkeys. Um, you know, he's this angry Twitter rage monkey character that he plays in the New York Times. I mean, the rumor is he doesn't write his own column. I don't know if that's true or not. I really kind of hope for his sake it's not. I would be less embarrassed for him if he were outsourcing it than if he actually were writing <laughs> that crap. But... Um, the story we want to tell ourselves is that everything that's wrong with the world is that there's someone evil out there who's causing this to happen. It's good guys and bad guys. We're the virtuous ones. The people we don't like are the evil ones. And everything would be fine if it weren't for them. And if you've got a country in which about 40% of the people believe that, about 40% of the other people, and those 40% reciprocate that belief, and 20% of the people are just watching The Bachelor or doing whatever the rest of the people do, you're not going to have a healthy democratic culture in the long term. You know, if you think about a guy like Lincoln, who was in office in a much more difficult time. You, you know, think? I think that was actually much more consequential. And Lincoln mm-hmm. was the one out lecturing Americans about, you know, we have to be friends. We can't think of each other as enemies. And now we've got President Trump saying, you know, punch that guy in the face and I'll post your bail for you. Hate that. Um, that's, uh, that is not helpful. evidence that if evolution is a real thing, it's in species and not in countries. Uh, and you have people on both sides. Why they decry it on one side, they'll do it on the other side. Sure, that, of course. That's, yeah, on, that's on both sides. It's on both sides. Um, how did we get here? Is it Twitter and Facebook and all of that that got us here? No. I, again, I think those things, they reveal things about us and they intensify things because they give us the opportunity to do bad immediately before we stop and think about it. But I think... Um, and then reward you. Yes, and reward you with attention. So that's the economy of social media, right? Is you pay attention to other people, and then you go out there and that you hope attention will be paid back to you. Um, I heard an interview on, on the radio the other day with a woman who's in a band, uh, Sleater Kenny, is that what it's called? Um, it was big back in the 90s or something. The lady from Portlandia was in it. Um, apparently, they're popular. People shake their heads when I can't remember this. <laughs> anyway, she was talking about this weird thing of being on social media where you set yourself up on this little stage... And then you wait for applause. And for someone who actually is a performer to feel weird about that and to understand that weirdness is one thing. But people who aren't professional performers who still in their everyday lives are basically trying to 
live psychologically the same way, I think, is is really very difficult for them and it's bound to be unsatisfying. I think a lot of this has to do with changes in the way we live and work in the last 30, 40 years, where a lot of us move more often, we change employers more often, we delay marriage, we delay parenthood, um, we don't go to church as much as we used to. So things that used to provide us with relationships and a sense of belonging, status, significance, have either been diminished or for many people taken away entirely. So people go looking for new things to belong to and new sources of identity and meaning. And unfortunately, they've turned to this really dumb form of cowboys and Indians politics on social media. And it's again, you're right. This is on both sides. It's a conservative thing as well as a, as a progressive thing. It's team red and team blue of screaming at each other and saying, you're evil, you're evil, you're dumb, you're dumb, you're rotten, you're rotten. And um, they somehow managed to convince themselves that they're doing something other than uh, playing a game, but they're really just playing a role-playing game. That's why um, things like Antifa are a problem, I think. Anytime you've got ordinary political violence happening in a city like Portland, it's a problem. But in a sense, you know, groups like Antifa and groups like the Proud Boys or whatever their opposite number is on the right these days are really just playing a game with one another. They're not really engaged in serious politics. They're not really in pursuit of real political power. They're, they're LARPing. You know, they've got, uh, they've got this role-playing game that they've taken into the public square in places like Berkeley and Washington and, and some other places, and they're essentially playing a game. It's a game in which people actually get hurt and killed sometimes, but they're essentially playing a game uh, because they're bored and they're lonely and they're alienated and they don't know what to do with their lives. I don't think the SA was playing a game. No, I think they were a lot more serious. I think that, uh, and that's the difference really, is that... Um, they were, I mean, they, they were not so bright. No, they weren't bright necessarily. I think that, you know, with the National Socialists, you had more of a coherent ideology. Uh, you had an actual social crisis that was going on, which always helps demagogues. We don't have an actual social crisis, so we're constantly inventing one. Trump is Hitler. Mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders is Stalin. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of these things are true. Um, the country is, you know, two tweets away from the Holocaust or one election away from losing the Republic. I don't think those things are true. You don't? No, I don't think so. I think that um, we tell ourselves that story. I think that, you know, having elected Hillary Clinton in 2016 or electing uh, Elizabeth Warren in 2020 will do a great deal of damage to the country. I think so, but I think the country is resilient and can withstand a lot. And we made it through the Civil War and the Great Depression, a lot of other stuff, and we'll make it through these things too. I think we have these big watershed moments though uh, i do too i just don't think this is one of them all right so let's talk about it for a second yeah 9-11 watershed mm-hmm. moment changed us the patriot act was sitting on a dusty shelf already written mm-hmm. that happened let's take some control um tarp uh bush actually saying you know mr president you're either going to be remembered as hoover or you're going to be remembered as fdr all of them would say fdr right and he did I got to, I got to, what was he say? I got to violate the free market, save the free market. That's crazy talk. Yes, it is. And that changed us. Uh, Barack Obama, healthcare changed us. Um, and we're getting to a point now to where there's almost, I mean, it's, you, you, we're, we're driving a truck or a, uh, or a, uh, uh, a classic car and we're driving it like it's a brand new Porsche. You know what I mean? Yes. And it doesn't handle real well in corners. It's not meant to go this fast. <laughs> no, it it's, you know, it's got all these different things. Yeah. 
at some point, one of these is it just you've pushed it too far. Yeah. And I uh, we don't know our own history. We we don't know each other. We don't like each other f- for all intents and purposes, it seems. Um, when when and if the economy goes down, you have wolves licking their chops saying free market doesn't work. Once you take away the free market. Do you have the United States of America? No, I don't think you do, but I don't think it probably gets taken away. I think even if you elect someone who really, really wants to do it and has the political power to do it, I think it's just it's it's almost an impossible thing to do uh, just because the way we live is so enmeshed in that. Um, People will try to raise taxes. They'll try to um, have the government take a commanding hand over certain things like maybe energy, labor policy, those sorts of things. And those will all be bad things, but I I don't think you— I don't think the the United States is is really quite that that weak. I mean, you're right about the way changes happen, and it's always you know Robert Higgs wrote this famous book, Crisis and Leviathan, and that's that's the way it always happens. Mm-hmm. There's a crisis, government expands, crisis goes away, but it stays where it was. Mm-hmm. I sometimes have these funny conversations with my conservative friends, and they ask me about my politics, and you know I'm a pretty crazy libertarian, uh, you know, sort of borderline anarchist, and they're like, "That's extreme, that's crazy," and I say, well, "What do you guys want?" And they say. Well, I want us to live under the Constitution as it was originally understood. That's I'm like, libertarian yeah, I'm extreme. Like, you guys are much more radical than I am. Yeah. Do you realize how different this country would be? I've just been rereading um, Cult of the Presidency by a guy who works over at Cato. I've forgotten the author's name. Forgive me for that author. And um, you know, if you just look at the way our conception of what the president is supposed to be and do has changed over the years, it's crazy. Taft wrote a little pamphlet on it um, when he was running for re-election about I'm not really supposed to solve every problem. I'm supposed to just basically be the CEO of the government and make sure the agencies run the right way. Right. And if you don't like what the law says, tell well, Congress about it. Yeah. yeah. Um, that changed with Wilson. Right. <laughs> Who beat Taft. Right. Yeah. right. <laughs> so, because of a third party spoiler. Well, yeah, there was that too. Although you think Wilson might've beat him anyway? I don't know. I don't know. No, that I, very well. I don't think so. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's not to say that we couldn't have a crisis. It's not to say there aren't dangers out there lurking for us. There always are. Um, but I think that the United States is a country with a lot of strong and functional institutions, some of which we really don't appreciate very much. Um, I mean, you, you take the Fed. Every conspiracy theorist hates the, the Fed. The president hates the Fed right now. He hates his appointees to the Fed. Um, the Fed has basically done a pretty good job of doing what it's supposed to do. Now, if I were designing the country from the ground up back in the 1700s, I wouldn't have put a central bank there either. And I think we'd probably get along just fine without one. Um, well, without having had one. Now that we have one, we have a lot of institutions that are built up around that. I don't think Americans want to be poor. They don't want to be vulnerable. They don't want to be miserable. They know how not to do that. We know how to make stuff and do stuff. So you um, might say that people uh, don't like the Fed, and they may actually say, I should have asked this question. I was with a friend this weekend, and he said, Glenn, we just sold our business. We have some money. We lost everything in 08. Mm. You know, I just don't know what we're going to do because we just can't afford to lose all of our money again. And uh, and as he's talking, I just started hearing, you know, Wilson and all the progressives talk about the Fed. That's the thing that brought the Fed in. Yeah. You know, you had a depression well, it lasted about a year, but you had a depression about every 10 to 12 years and you would lose everything and you'd have to start over. And not everybody would, but a lot of people would. Mm. Uh, and there was no, there was no room for that pain. People did not want that pain. Yeah. Yeah. I, mean, I think that, um, people like predictability 
And that's part of, I think, where our anxiety right now comes from is that um, we don't know what's going to happen next. You know, I think about uh, people of my father's generation who would work for the same company or for mm-hmm. two companies over the course of their lives. Uh, whereas a lot of people in my generation, I think I've had 21 employers or something like that, or uh, maybe I'm a bad example of this, mm-hmm. but I uh, can't keep a job, but uh, or 21 home addresses and 17 employees or something. I get them confused, but um, we don't have these fixed lives anymore. And so it's great for a lot of people and people like me, especially because it brings opportunity and new things and you can try new things and you don't have to be doing the same thing at the same desk for 25 years, the way a lot of people used to. But a lot of people want to do the same thing at the same desk for 25 years. And there's nothing wrong with that. We shouldn't sneer at those people and look down at them. A lot of people prefer uh, the predictability of life as an employee in an old-fashioned 1960s-style corporation Mm -hmm. to life in an economy in which everyone has to be, to some extent, an entrepreneur, in which there's no fixity and no security. And um, I think that is part of where this anxiety and hysteria And also this desire for autocracy comes from because people are looking at the government saying, be my father, you know, be my father, be my chieftain, be my God, solve my problems. I will give you my allegiance if you'll just make sure that I've got a roof over my head and that my health care is taken care of. My kids are educated. So how do you bring America back to where it was? Well, was when? Uh, When we were. And do we want to? I mean, some things we'd like to bring back, like, you know, there were some aspects of like, you know, I'm an Eisenhower guy, right? I'm sort of philosophically radical, but politically I'm pretty moderate. I like consensus and bipartisanship and that stuff because I think that's where stability comes from. Right. And I think instability is the most dangerous thing in a country that has democratic institutions. We are so successful because we had cheap energy and stability. Yeah. And, you know, rule of law, Mm -hmm. basic things like that. Secure property rights. Yeah. Yeah. All the things that go along with that or that, you know, that brings stability. Um, there are a lot of things about that era that I like, a lot of things that obviously we wouldn't like that we'd want to change. Um, but it's not one of those things where you get to pick the things you like and then leave behind the things you don't. Mm-hmm. So everyone who complains about globalization likes globalization. We like having access to things from all over the world at better prices. I always point out there's a wonderful passage in The Count of Monte Cristo, which is one of my favorite novels. And uh, the Count, who is this, you know, richest man in Paris, and he always does these whimsical things. He has a dinner party at which he serves two different kinds of fish. And this is a huge thing. Everyone is just stunned and awed by this display of wealth and ingenuity of having a, of ingenuity of having a, two kinds of fish. Now, you walk into a Walmart, and the poorest people in America can go choose from 70 kinds of fish, and we don't think twice about it. Um, but even you read books like, um, you read Stephen King's The Stand, which was written, I guess it's published in 1980, written in 1978, 1979. There's a guy who's going home to visit his mother in the Bronx, and he's a rock star. Mm-hmm. He's made all this money, and his mom cleans houses, and she doesn't have very much money. And he goes back home, and she, he finds that she's bought two pounds of butter because she's going to cook for him because that's what mothers do when their sons come to visit. And he thinks to himself, how did she ever get the money to do that? You know, this was during my lifetime. I'm not an ancient man. And um, so our quality of life has changed just radically over where it was in the 1960s, 70s, to say nothing oh of the 1950s. If the American people were asked to go back to the economy where everybody had a job in these factories or pumping uh, people uh, out, right? Yeah. Oh, man. You talk, I mean, you talk about that in your book. I do, yeah. And uh, people talk about wanting that because they want the stability, but they don't want the standard of living that goes with it. So um, they want to get all the dynamism and... Uh, 
quality of life that comes with having globalization, the other institutions that we have now and the other economic practices we have now, but they don't want to pay the price that goes with it. So they've essentially become, you know, as I always say, we're the spoiled children of history. We're the richest, freest, happiest, best off people in the world, and we are miserable. We've never been unhappier. We're, we think that, you know, we're always, it's always 1939 here. That the Great Depression is going on and there are Nazis somewhere. And that's not really the case. That's not how we live. But there have been changes that have gone along with that that are not universally welcomed. They do make people's lives less stable, less predictable, and more stressful. And I think that is really the basic source of our, our political discontent right now. I write about this a lot for National Review that um, when conservatives look at members of the electorate who don't tend to go along with us on stuff, single women, African-Americans, immigrants, um, if you look at them, these are groups of people who tend to be risk averse mm-hmm. and who often have good reasons to be risk averse. The market economy has not always been good to African-Americans, not when you're being bought and sold in the market economy. And this was not a thousand years ago. And, you know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was not 500 years ago. It was not that long ago. There's reason for people to be risk averse. And we look at their preference for big government programs as being personal corruption. It's being you're lazy, you want welfare benefits, and you're being bought your vote. Your vote's being bought by the Democrats. We have this stupid plantation talk that people use as though it's impossible that black Americans just simply prefer the— policies of the Democratic Party, and maybe have good reasons for doing so. Um, So we're out there talking about the free market and entrepreneurship and dynamism for people who don't want those things, who are afraid of them, who don't like what they brought. And we need to make our argument in the context, I think, of that risk aversion of here's what you stand to lose, first of all, which is your 21st century quality of life and your standard of living, um, which is very important to you. Do you know where it comes from? Do you know how these things happen? And then people need to understand the trade-offs between these things. And then to the extent that Republicans and conservatives want to offer uh, social policies, welfare policies, social insurance, those sorts of things, they should be tailored in a way to deal with that specific risk aversion. Yes. Because that's really what's going on. It's not a bidding contest. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll give you $60,000 for your vote. They'll give you $70,000. And we really misunderstand how this stuff even works. Like, uh, if you, again, if you look at the case of African-American voters, they tend to move to the left the wealthier they are and the higher income they are. So they become more supportive of redistribution, higher taxes, social spending when they're wealthy. So the black voters who are the least likely to benefit from redistribution and from welfare spending are the ones who most support it. So this is not about someone out there going, how can I get the government to give me money? Um, It's a whole different set of things. I've wandered a bit afar from the book here, but that's that's, um, a reality that I think conservatives and libertarians and free market people need to deal with and need to deal with in a way that's that's forthright and honest. So we're looking at, I mean, nobody will talk, and I don't think this is the answer, but I've had a conversation, imagine this on talk radio. I've had the conversation that we have to talk about basic minimum income. Hmm. I don't think that's the answer, but the world is changing so much, um, and, the, and, and the wealth will really truly be concentrated in very few hands if if the... Amazons and the Googles and everything else actually do block people uh, through algorithms or through government regulation. Um, And we have a situation to where we could be in trouble only because people have to go out and find something new and different. And the, you know, my wife is, is a good example of this. She's not 
She's not cut from the entrepreneurial cloth. She's an entrepreneurial uh, uh, a person with our children. I mean, she's got it down. I couldn't do that job. She couldn't do my job. What happens to those people? What happens to people who are happy being a truck driver? And they don't want to start their own business. Yeah. But the truck driving job is going away. Yeah, I mean, we have to get used to the fact that things change. They always have. Um, there are lots of jobs that were good jobs in the 19th century and the 1950s that aren't jobs anymore. Uh, you know, the job my father had for most of his life is a job that simply doesn't exist because of information technology. Um, so these things are not changing. And to the extent that we've got demagogues who want to tell people, I can protect you from this, but I can stop these changes from happening by putting tariffs on this or having a Green New Deal or doing this or that or the other. These are all dishonest. And I think that people understand that they're dishonest if you really explain to them in some detail why this is the case. And you shouldn't give in to the temptation to shake your finger at people and say, well, you should just get used to the world as it is. And yes, you do have to get used to the world as it is. Mm -hmm. But there are also things we can do to help people to live in that world and to get used to it. Um, Because I, I... don't care about the idea of popularity very much, I suppose, which is hard when you're trying to sell books. But um, I, I sometimes frame this as the problem, what do we do about dumb people? And uh, which I don't really mean dumb people, but so you've got half the population who are you know, at median IQ or lower. And uh, the 21st century is a really tough world for them. You know, if you're in the sort of top 20 percent in terms of your skills, your education, your intelligence, it's a great world. You've got lots of opportunities, all sorts of fun, interesting things to do. You can go from one thing to the next. Uh, If you're someone who would have made a pretty good clerk in a hardware store in 1959, and uh, that's really what you're cut out for, and you don't really have uh, the raw materials or the ambitions to do something else to, you know, be that um, entrepreneurial 21st century worker, what do we do about that? And I think that's a real problem. Um, People sort of sneer at the so-called gig economy and Uber drivers and that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But I think there's actually some real value there um, because... Human effort and human energy and intelligence and ingenuity are inherently valuable. Uh So the nice thing about being in a society in which a lot of people have a lot of disposable income and a desire for more time on their hands is they can consume more services. And, uh, you know, my colleague Michael Brendan Doherty sort of sneers about this sometimes. And, well, why is our our economy only creating jobs detailing cars and, uh, you know, things like that? And I thought, you know what? The guy who details my car drives a Mercedes. He's got a really good business. I have friends who are in the lawn care business who make you know healthy six-figure incomes. Um, now, not everyone's going to do that, but some people are. And some people are going to be the employees of those companies who make less money. That's okay. Um, I'm not a big supporter of the basic income. I don't think it's a great idea for a lot of reasons. I prefer it's the— not, It's not worked anywhere it's tried. Yeah. I don't think it would work. I but. do like the idea of a negative income tax where you can take all the stuff that we do in terms of welfare support and just make a check out of it, which I think is fine. I think most people can spend their own money and make their own decisions. Um, I don't think that patronizing, condescending idea about people who receive benefits is is very helpful. But you do it in such a way that it incentivizes work rather than disincentivizing work. And so I think maybe if we could replace a whole bunch of this stuff with a negative income tax, I think that would be a worthwhile experiment. So... I don't see us turning around on socialism. I don't see us turning around fast on nationalism. Uh, and I don't see us turning around on on uh, socialism. Mm. 
So where do we go from here? My read on where we are is that I'm a, I'm a long-term optimist and a short-term pessimist. I think that we are in for some bumpy spots ahead of us. Uh, because if you keep acting like you're in a crisis long enough, you'll get one. Hmm. <laughs> you'll, you'll create one mm-hmm. of your own. Mm-hmm. And by making bad decisions, by swinging back and forth radically on things, um, by precluding the emergence of that stability that we were talking about earlier. Uh, it's sort of like, you know, I, I say this about tax policy sometimes. It's not that I don't care whether the top rate is 39% or 34.5%. I do care. I think it makes a difference. But I'd be fine if we would just pick one and stick with it for the next 50 years. Um, There are things about how I would like to organize the healthcare system that probably wouldn't be that popular. There are things from the- what? um, I think that the people who came up with the original version of Obamacare were essentially trying to adapt the Swiss system to the United States. I think the Swiss system is actually pretty good. Switzerland. Switzerland. I don't think it's going to work very well for us. But, you go um, over to those countries and you see, I mean, when I walked into Sydney, I always thought Sydney was a giant city. It's about the size of Pittsburgh. Yeah, it's not And huge. then there's nothing else. It's the it's if we moved everybody in New York onto that entire continent. Yeah. That's it. You would notice them. You know, yeah. things work differently when you don't have 350 million people. That's true. Um, but there are things that I think that um, come from the left on what they want to do with health care reform that I could countenance, even though they're not my preferences, like an individual mandate, I could actually countenance. I think if you're going to have one, you need to enforce it. And you need to make sure like you've got Swiss style 99.9% compliance. Mm-hmm. That changes your market a lot. Um, I'd be willing to accept some of those things in return for policy stability. And that's what we used to do is we used to work toward compromise and consensus. And again, this is a big part of what the book is about, is that if we're going to have a political culture in which we interact with one another only as mascots and as representatives of the mm-hmm. team and the tribe we don't like, rather than as individuals and citizens having a conversation in the context of the democratic institutions of a democracy, then we can't forge consensus and we can't ever have policy stability. And so we get these swings back and forth, back and forth. Like Joe Rogan's joke about this, you know, we go, Right, left, right, left, dumb, smart, dumb, smart. Right, right, right. And uh, I don't think he's exactly right on that. And I don't think a lot of the smart people have been as smart as they think they are. Mm-hmm. But we do that. You know, there's no, there's no coherent explanation of Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump. Um, that's not a country that's thinking things through real carefully, <laughs> I think. That's a country that's just having a hissy fit. And it depends on which side is having the bigger hissy fit in any given moment. So do you see us turning? I see us evolving in the right direction. Ultimately, yes. I think that um, Americans will make the right decisions about things once they've exhausted all their other Mm. options. Um, Again, we don't want to be poor. We know this. We know where our wealth actually comes from. We know why we trade. We know why we allow for entrepreneurship. Yes, some people resent the fact that Jeff Bezos has so much money or that Mark Zuckerberg has so much money. You know, here's the funny thing I wrote. I wrote this back in 2012 during that election uh, that Mitt Romney shouldn't be ashamed of his wealth right. because Americans don't really hate rich people for being rich. And the example I used was, look, they turned into their television to watch Donald Trump fire people. Mm-hmm. I never thought we'd actually make him president <laughs> right, right, <laughs> when I wrote that. Right. Um, Americans 
there's some resentment and envy out there. And anything that's old enough to have a prohibition against it in the Old Testament is just part of human nature. It's going to be there forever. But I don't think we're going to let those things ultimately turn us into Venezuela or Haiti or Somalia or someplace like that. I just don't think we're that dumb. And I don't think we're that self-hating. Did I read the opening uh, first paragraphs? Americans uh, are idiots as voters. And uh, they're not idiots as people, though. That's the thing about our country where we are so we're so mixed. We do these amazing, inventive things, and then we have a 2016 presidential election. It's Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, which would be embarrassing as a mayor's race of New York City, uh, much less president of the United States of America. Actually, it would be a pretty good New York mayor's race. I take that back. I'd like you just to read. (laughs) What do you want to read? Now, this is about democracy. So this is about the voting voting public. Put on my glasses for this. I'm sorry. I know. This is... uh... That there's no special virtue in consulting morons and cretins simply because they exist. There's no special moral value in bundling together complex problems and policy ideas and asking 50% plus one of a sprawling and almost pristinely ignorant group of barely improved chimpanzees, only a relatively few generations of evolution removed from habitual public masturbation and ritual poo-flinging, what they think about those bundles and which of them they prefer. Yeah, this is why I'm not a huge believer in uh, democracy. Um well, neither were their founders. Right. And I, who I quote extensively in there. So democracy is really important procedurally because it's our substitute for violence. Um, you say you want this guy to be our representative. I say we want that guy. We have a vote. We go on through it. But the idea that policies or positions or principles or moral propositions become more true because a whole bunch of people believe in them at any given moment is preposterous. And yeah, I don't think a, any serious person can really can really believe that. But we talk as though we believe that because we use democracy as a synonym for good stuff. You know, we believe in democracy. Well, well, slavery was democracy. democracy. Yeah, if you had a vote on slavery, slavery would have won seventy thirty. Yeah, probably. So you you have democracy, and that's that's why we don't have a democracy, right? And, um, and just because you know, I love this. Well, well, that's settled law. What do you mean it's settled law? Yeah. It's settled law. We, we can change those laws. We can't change rights. We can't change responsibilities. But the laws, the interpretation, if somebody passed it because 90% of the American people said slavery was good, I wouldn't think slavery was good. Right. Um, you know, everyone has to uh, account for their own, their own soul and think for themselves. Um, it's funny where we get with this stuff. I was reading an essay the other day, some idiot writing in Slate, and he was coming down on Clarence Thomas about something. And he was shocked, or at least pretended to be shocked, by the idea that Thomas didn't think himself bound by precedent in cases in which that precedent was unconstitutional. So he wouldn't support the precedent if he thought the precedent was wrong. So I thought, well, what is your alternative here? That he's supposed to take something he thinks is plainly unconstitutional and support it because it exists? And someone in 1830 thought this was a good idea uh, because we got some decisions you might want to revisit if that's what you think. We've had some mm-hmm. awful presidents, precedents and well, awful presidents, too. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad they're both gone and are overturned. I think that um, the great thing about the American system of government and why I do wish we would return to something more like our actual constitutional architecture is kind of what we started talking about, which is that it says, whoa, you know, it keeps things from happening too fast. And all of the best aspects of our government, I think all the ones I really admire the most, are the anti-democratic aspects of the government, like the Bill of Rights, 
know, the Bill of Rights always describes the great big list of stuff that you idiots don't get to vote on because mm-hmm. we've already settled this and it's done. Um, you don't like free speech? Fine. You don't like free speech. We're not voting on it. We've already decided on this. Mm-hmm. 70% of you don't like it. 90% of you don't like it. Sorry. You've got a right to free speech. You don't get to vote on this. Um, the presidency, as it originally was conceived, was thought to be a break on the House of Representatives, which the founders thought would be too eager because it was too democratic. The Senate, of course, was the same thing. Uh, the Supreme Court is there to keep Congress from being too democratic, from being too demagogic and responding to what the founders used to refer to as the passions of the moment. And um, not only our constitutional architecture, but also our political culture, and I think our culture more broadly, would do well to return to some of that wisdom and to learn some of those lessons. Um, you know, if what's worse about Twitter, and I don't exempt myself, by the way, from any of this. Uh, social media never brought out the best in me. Mm. Uh, it certainly doesn't bring out the best in, in, in most people, I think. Um, is the immediacy I think our world of it. would be completely different if we all just shut it off. Yeah, and not any worse. I haven't used any social media in a couple of years now, and uh, I don't find that I miss it. And I, I thought it was good for marketing. I was wrong about that. It doesn't really affect my readership at all, as it turns out. So I can't think of a good reason to do it. Although the reason I re- really used to do it, of course, Twitter is great if you're a writer and you procrastinate because you don't want to do your real work. So well, let's see who's being stupid tonight. <laughs> and, you know, and you always end up arguing and slapping around some undergraduate at Lehigh University or something like that, who's maybe not the best investment of your time. And uh, because they're, they're at Lehigh, they're not educable. And oh, I'm sorry. I mean, and uh, I usually say Texas Tech, but I've had to right, stop doing yeah, that. Right. So, um, you know, just it was never a real good use of time. Never brought it the best in me. But this culture of immediacy, of wanting things immediately, needing immediate feedback, immediate attention. Someone pay attention to me. Listen to what I have to say right now. Give me what I want from the government right now. The time for debate has passed. It's time for the government to act. Well, the time for debate has passed. Why? Because you say so? Because yeah. I want to debate about this stuff. And... Um, that's always the mark of a demagogue, right? Yeah. Is that um, we must act right now or the world is ending. And, uh, but the world isn't ending. It keeps just not ending. I am, I've been shocked on how resilient this country is. Yeah. Got a lot of money, a lot of smart people. Um, we've got a lot of accumulated social capital, which unfortunately I think we're spending down a bit of and we need to reinvest mm-hmm. in some of that. But um, I'm not, uh, I'm not a super jingoistic American. You know, uh, a lot of conservatives, for some reason, hate Europe. Uh, you know, conservatives like France is a hellhole. Well, it's not. <laughs> France is a perfectly nice place. I like Switzerland a lot. I kind of think about moving there sometimes, and maybe I will. But, um, but it is true that when you travel, and especially if you do business abroad, you come to appreciate certain things about the United States you do. Oh, yeah. Like, I heard... Uh, not a super left wing, but a pretty up and down the line progressive Silicon Valley executive a uh, year and a half or so ago who just sounds like Milton Friedman. You're going to talk about doing business in Germany. He's like, thank God for the United States. It's the only place we can do business. So hard abroad. You know, the taxes are nuts and the, and the regulation is nuts. And we tend to think um, we have a pessimism bias. We always notice all the worst stuff. And um, because we're spoiled. Well, because we're spoiled. Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. And we undervalue the good things. And again, this is something I think conservatives especially really need to work on because conservatives hate a lot of the stuff that's successful about America. You know, we hate Silicon Valley. We hate Hollywood. We hate Wall Street. We hate the university system. Um, There's 
criticisms be made of all those things, but they're also really, really valuable institutions that we should show a little love for from time to time. I don't think I hate any of those things. Maybe not you. <laughs> read my mail. Read your mail. You so got someone to read, when you read the When you read the mail, do you get more optimistic or less optimistic? Oh, I get less optimistic when I read the mail, obviously. Uh, well, you never read the comments in <laughs> the mail. Um, although often you'll get you know some interesting intelligent commentary from people, too. It's not as though... You know, we're in some uh, Aronimus Bosch painting or something like that. You know, that's not not the actual country. The one thing I can't figure out with our system that that I haven't. I don't mind how much money you have. I really don't. I don't care. You made it legally. You made it ethically. Fine. Didn't do anything wrong. You're guilty after you're, um, you know, you're into innocent and then you're proven guilty. So um, I have no problem with business and et cetera, et cetera. However, I have tried to figure out, you know, the robber barons were not the robber barons, but they were also, they also had, you know, uh, not enough Hank Reardon in them. Sure. And uh, every time I look at the system, I think, okay, there's there's a few things going on. One, uh, it's globalist and uh, and distorted capitalism. And when I say globalist, what I mean is people are worrying about their jobs. They're worrying. They're seeing their hometown, the white picket fence. Everybody's moving away because there's no jobs there. They're told, well, you're going to have to move someplace else. Well, I don't want to leave my little town. I like my little town, you know. Um, and so they're feeling disfranchised and they're not, nobody's listening to them, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then they're being told that they're a racist, um, you know, or they're a Nazi or, or whatever. So that there's, there's that disenfranchisement that they're trying to, to get through. Then they're worried with, globalist, uh, with globalization they're worried about just having a job. You know, they're not, most are living paycheck to paycheck or pretty close to paycheck to paycheck. Um, and they don't, they're worried about their job. They're worried about their heritage. They're worried about their town. They're worried about their um, uh, their kids. What what happens when you have the the robber barons coming in? They made, they made things great. You know, they did it. They created a lot of jobs. But once you get to a certain level, you can kick the door behind you closed. You're seeing it with, you know, you saw it with Vanderbilt and the railways. You're seeing it now with with Google and Facebook. They're going in for regulation. So the little guy can't compete. That's what I think they're worried about with globalization. I think they're they're seeing their towns their heritage being destroyed, the jobs changing. Nobody's really talking to them about what your future is going to be. Nobody's articulating this. Politicians are only saying, I'm going to bring your job back. No, you're not. Yeah. Because those jobs aren't going to exist. They're not going to just exist for Chinese. You know, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. One of the great ironies of our current politics is that the complaint you're talking about is essentially a complaint about corporatism, you know, where you've got 
a partnership between big business and big government, and uh, each of them trying to use the other for its own advantage. And uh, what's been offered as a cure for that is more corporatism. It's corporatism with us in charge instead of these other right. SOBs in charge. And um, that, of course, is not going to work the way people want it to. Um, this is, of course, really the great um, rebirth of, of corporatism as a political idea is really the one of the characteristics of our time where you've got people on the left with these crazy Green New Deal things, people on the right saying, well, we're going to have government-managed trade and uh, we're going to have government oversee the technology companies so that they're being patriotic or whatever it's supposed to be. And that's all, of course, nuts, and it's all doomed to failure. And I always just want to tell people, have you flown recently? Do you want the people who organized the TSA to try to run Silicon Valley or banking? Or, or anything. Um, or a two-car parade? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? People I, don't want not, them, I don't want them right. running the, the airports. Yeah. Um, I think ultimately you end up with real market competition reasserting itself over attempts to try to quash it because it's just very difficult to keep that sort of thing down. And, uh, you know, when you're talking about these guys in Silicon Valley now taking a more open approach to being regulated, you're right. They're worried about competition. And you talk to these guys and they always say the same thing that we're not worried about any company you've ever heard of. You know, we're worried about some guy in his garage because that's who we used to be 30 years ago. We were some guy in the garage Mm -hmm. and we know what we did Mm -hmm. and how we quote unquote disrupted things. And, um, that's another funny thing about our times. Everyone loves the word disruption, but everyone actually hates disruption. Hates it. And uh, if you actually are disruptive to an institution, if you are disruptive to your university or to a little magazine that employs you or something like mm-hmm. that, um, that's the one thing that you know corporations will not actually uh, deal with. And uh, you know whether it's Google, whether it's Facebook, uh, whether it's the New York Times, whether it's anyone else. Um, an odd, an odd period, I think, for that particular reason. But I don't think these guys are ultimately going to be able to control what goes on in the markets because even if they really, really hold their regulators hostage, and, and they often can, um, the power of markets and capital right now is such that the power of states can no longer really adequately control it. And uh, I think that's one of the things that Americans and American government's going to have to get used to is that there are a lot of these businesses that employ a lot of people and generate a lot of wealth don't have to be in California. They don't have to be in the United States at all. Um, if I were an American tobacco company, why are you incorporating the United States of America? I'd be in Singapore or someplace like that, someplace that doesn't hate you. Um, you know, and there are a lot of places in the world that like to be home to these companies, and they're going to say, okay, I'm here. And they'd like to be home to the next one, too. You know, so Facebook's already out there. But eventually they're going to get a, a real competitor. And they've already got competitors for some aspects of their business. But... Um, you know, in the same way that there was such a thing as MySpace, which no one really remembers that Facebook just sort of swept away. Um, it's not as though Facebook is the utility company. It's not U.S. Steel. Um, even U.S. Steel isn't U.S. Steel anymore. You know, it used to be a huge company. Now it's a tiny little company. Um, these companies are not immune from competition. And that competition doesn't have to be any particular place. You know, you can incorporate in Switzerland or you can incorporate in Abu Dhabi or Dubai or Singapore. Lots of places love to have the business. Uh, do you see anybody on the horizon that you say that person's inspiring? Um, in politics, you mean? Yeah. I probably think more highly of Ben Sass than I do of anyone else who holds public office so. in at least at the federal level. I and think he's for me, the it's real ben deal. Sass and, and uh, Mike Lee. Yeah. 
Um, I'm more of a SaaS guy than a Lee guy, but maybe I don't, I don't know as much about Lee. So um, I think he is honest. I think that he is a genuine patriot in the sense that he cares more about the country than it is about a, the party or his particular uh, life. He is one of the few people you meet in politics who doesn't have the psychological need for it. Um, there's some people who just need to be in office or they need to be famous. They need to be in the media. Um, they need to have that attention. You know, Bill Clinton was famously this way, but he's not the only one. Um, I think Sass could quit politics tomorrow and go back and do something that made a lot of money and spend more time with his kids oh, back yeah. in Nebraska. I think he'd like it more. He probably would, yeah. Uh, I think he is one of the few people you can point to um, and say with some confidence that he really is there out of a sense of service and uh, out of a sense of patriotism. And so I wish there were more like him out there, yeah. certainly. Um, you said that earlier, you said, you know, 40, 40, that's 80, there's 20%. I think there's more than that myself. Mm. Um, but what do they rally around? Anything? I don't know. Um, I used to be a Republican. Uh, I haven't been in a long time. I quit the Republican Party over Arlen Specter, which seems quaint in <laughs> retrospect. And you it were, really does. You were a Philly guy for a while. Yep, you're, yep, uh, you're yep, yep. He was a... And uh, speaking of Philadelphia, you know, I was, we were talking about being in Australia and no news on the televisions. The thing I loved about the Union League in Philadelphia is no television anywhere. Mm-hmm. Unless you could go have lunch and not have a television. And if someone took out a cell phone, they would make you put it away or ask you to leave, yeah. which I thought was great. And uh, more places should be like that. Mm-hmm. They should have one of those James Bond injection sheet things for, uh, for that sort of thing. But um, if I were a Republican, what would I want to rally around? Um, I don't know. And I think to some extent the habit of looking for a person and a personality to rally around is part of the problem. I agree. And um, especially when it comes to the presidency, which is this weird, distorted thing now. You know, I after I wrote this book, I told myself I wasn't going to write another political book. But I think I want to write a book about the presidency as a religious phenomenon um, in the sense that it people talk about the cult of the presidency. Yeah. There's a very good book called The Cult of the Presidency. But the problem with the book, The Cult of the Presidency, which, by the way, is an excellent book, it doesn't actually treat the presidency as a cult. And I think it actually has become a cult in the religious sense of that word. Don't you think politics have? I mean, you look at the left, the uber left. Mm. That's a cult. That is an absolute God-worshipping cult. I'm not God-worshipping, uh, oh. uh, earth-worshipping. Lowercase. Yeah. Lowercase G. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that there is a, particularly when it comes to the presidency, there's an increasingly ceremonial aspect to it and spiritual aspect to it. So if you've ever read um, The Golden Bough by uh, James George Frazier, which uh, it's one of the books Kurtz has on his desk when he's killed at the end of Apocalypse Now. Uh, It's a wonderful book. It's about uh, priest-king cults in the ancient world. And essentially that if the rains didn't come and the crops didn't come in, it was assumed that the priest-king hadn't propitiated the gods in the right way and he'd be murdered and replaced by someone else. We do just kind of a fancy version of that now. It's a little less violent. But, you know, if there's a 2% contraction in GDP, you can be darn sure that Donald Trump's out and we'll put in a new guy who's going to make it rain and make the crops grow and make the cattle fertile and all the rest of it. And I know you're clutching your head over there, but that is how we That's think just, about this stuff. I know. I so know. I think I do want to write a book maybe about the presidency as a, there's a word I learned from George Will, uh, Caesaropapism, which I think is a great word. So one part Roman emperor, one part pope. And uh, that's really how we think about that office now. And I think that's 
A big part of actually what drives the politics that I'm talking about in the book, because if you look at that swing back and forth we were talking about earlier, what happens is 2012 or 2016, rather, the Republicans don't just want to beat the Democrat. They are so frustrated and loathing of Barack Obama, and they feel so humiliated by him that they want someone who represents a national, cultural, and spiritual repudiation mm -hmm. of Barack Obama. They come up with Donald Trump, who's pretty good. Actually, if that's what you're looking for, Donald Trump's a good candidate. And the Democrats are going to fall into the exact same problem, I think, in 2016, or 2020, rather, where there are all sorts of normal people they could have picked and nominated yeah. for that job. And if they would have picked one normal one? They'd have won a huge one. Probably, yeah. Um, but they won't. What they want is someone who represents a repudiation of Trump. And so they're going to come up with the craziest person that they can. Uh, the most, you know, left-wing, confrontational, emotionally validating candidate they can find. Probably. I mean, I may be wrong about that, but that seems to be where they're leaning. And, I mean, they're taking seriously people like Beto O'Rourke, who's in no normal society is a real presidential candidate. <laughs> no. Uh, or Bernie Sanders or people like that. And so we get these swings back and forth because— each of the tribes feels that if the other tribe has its man in the White House, then they are marginalized and disenfranchised and humiliated. And so they have to swing back the other way. And if we could ever come up with um, a way to get over that politics, which is what I try to point to a little bit in the book, um, what's going to overcome that is reconceiving, among other things, the presidency as a guy who's there to act as the chief administrator. And he's not the embodiment of the nation. He's not an elected monarch. He's not the symbol of the country. He's not our national moral leader. He's not the conscience of the country. He's a guy. He's just a guy with an administrative job to do who sometimes has some bigger things to do during courses of a national emergency. And um, I've always quite liked that thing about the Swiss where they've got this weird presidency that's got you know, sort of a nine-member rotating council mm -hmm. And no one knows at any given time who the actual president is. Like you ask the typical Swiss person, they'll be like, oh, oh, yes, that lady. I forgot. Yeah, this month. And I was in Zurich some years ago. And uh, the lady who actually was the president of the Swiss Federation at the time apparently took the subway to work. And, uh, you know, when the deputy Where was that in Switzerland. But you know, if you go to Washington and you know, the deputy under vice secretary's secretary mm -hmm. of agriculture goes to lunch and it's like a Roman triumph, as imagined by P.T. Barnum. You know, it's like 75 armored cars and traffic comes to a stop and everyone stops to look. And Secretary of Agriculture, nobody cares about the Secretary <laughs> of Agriculture. He's the guy that we put in the little, you know, well-upholstered hidey hole during the State yeah. of the Union because we don't That's think right. anyone would bother to murder him. Right, right. You know. Kevin, uh, what's... What's on the horizon that uh, excites you or keeps you awake at night? Excites you in a good way. Yeah. Keep you awake at night. Uh, hmm. I think that um, we are on the verge in terms of how we just live materially, uh, particularly medically, of unprecedented and unimagined in many cases advances We're very very close to a lot of things that are going to be really very important i think i told somebody they said uh last night oh, my husband just made it through another cancer test and uh i said just just make it to 2030 
Yeah. And she said, why? And I said, oh, it may happen way before that, but we are so close to unlocking so many doors. If we don't piss away freedom yeah. and don't hand it over to some system like China, yeah. it's, it's freedom literally beyond our imagination, beyond anything you've ever read in any utopian book. It's that kind of freedom and success and, and, and freedom, you know. But the, if you look at my you know, short lifetime, look at the time since I got out of high school even, which wasn't that long ago, the number of people who die of things like famine oh. collapsed. The number of people who die in war, look at, way we, down. We, it made it worse this week because I just finished a book called um, The Volunteer. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know if you've read that or heard it, but it's fantastic. And it's, you know, it's talking about this guy who was in Auschwitz and, and, you know, the, the typhus. I come in in the morning and I look at the front page of the paper and it says Los Angeles suffering from typhus. Yes. <laughs> and I'm like, that, that's, 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 that's like saying, you know, the mayor's got scurvy. Yes. But, uh, <laughs> wait, we you have seen the mayor of Los Angeles. You could have scurvy. <laughs> uh. Look at where we, in the name of progress, we are going backwards so fast. Yeah. Yeah, and that's um, a disease of affluence, I think. You know, um, people who get afraid of things like vaccines, you're in a pretty fancy place in life when you're worried about yes. you know, vaccines rather than worried about having your whole country wiped out by, by something like that. But on that, same, you know, on that same token, if you look at some of the amazing things that have been done, you know, a bunch of Rotarians not that long ago got together at lunch and said, let's wipe out polio around the world. They're pretty close to it. They've gotten real close, except for a couple of places where they just can't operate, like parts of Pakistan and Afghanistan and, and the rural parts of Nigeria. Pretty well did it. This is a bunch of guys who sing goofy songs around lunch and, you yeah. know, who are you know, local business leaders in Mayberry and places like that. Um, people, and particularly American people, because we have so many resources at our disposal, can do remarkable things when they set their minds to it. And... Um, I think that if more people spent more time doing that sort of thing, they would be a lot more satisfied than screaming at people and calling them Nazis on Twitter because they would be involved in something that actually was important. It actually did change the so world. So I was at a, I was at a VC conference about a year ago and I was speaking a Venture guy, capitalist or Viet Cong? Uh, <laughs> venture capitalist. And, uh, oh, either uh, way with you. Yeah, hey, I know you never know. Uh, so I'm, I'm speaking. The guy after me is the, is the biggest VC guy. Um, probably in the world. Um, and he's from India. Mm. And uh, he said, um, he gets up to speak and he said, here's how the world's going to change. And it was just this crazy view. And I read enough science now to, and, and technology, science, science and technology, to know that's not crazy. That probably is going to be very close if we don't blow it. Um and he said, the problem is going to be meaning. Yeah. And he said, people who have a religion, he said, they're going to make the first adaptation. They will be the first adapters because it will free them up to do the things that their faith has taught them, gives them meaning. Go serve. He said, those without a service, faith or something, he said, are going to have a real hard time adapting. Um, so when you look at this beautiful utopian world that we, you know, could be headed towards, 
how do we stop people? We, our problems now is we're fat. We are well-fed. We have a single problem among us. I mean, real problem when you go to the rest of the world. And look at what we're doing. We're just flushing it all down the toilet because we're bored and yeah, we'll, spoiled. We'll find some problems. <laughs> you always do. No, I know. I, what I'm saying is how do we, when you don't have to work yeah. and you can 3D print anything you want and it's no big deal, where do you, how does that work with a, in the transition? Long term, yeah. maybe. In the transition, how? You just remind me of a, a conversation I had 25 years ago with someone in India and I remember what he said. He said, you know, we're poor, but you are barbarians. And if we had your conception of family life, we would look worse than Somalia. We'd be Lord of the Flies. Now, India was a lot poorer back in the 90s than it is now. But I think that's still true. Um, hmm. You know, I'm someone who thinks about things in economic terms a lot. And I think that's an important way to look at things from a public policy point of view. Um, because you can have all sorts of disputes and conversations when you're well-fed um, versus when people are hungry and they're going to eat each other. And, uh, you know, you don't want that. So I think that material well-being is not the end-all, be-all of life, obviously, but it's not to be sneezed at either. And I think that, you know, if we continue to work on those things and we continue to press toward what we actually can achieve on that front, there's meaning in that as well, you know. Um, it may very well be that the last person who's ever going to die of cancer has already been born mm. and that the person who are going to have a whole different world where cancers like diabetes, you know, it's mm-hmm. a pain, but you manage it. Mm-hmm. And if you do the right things, maybe shortens your life a little bit, but it's not a death sentence. Um, there's a lot of meaning in that. There's meaning in making the world a better place. Um, there's a guy I wrote about a couple of years ago, and there's also meaning in doing good work. And I think people forget about this. There's a guy I wrote about a couple of years ago as a wonderful company in Brooklyn called Cut. And he makes these very, very fancy kitchen knives. And they cost like three grand a piece. And you can't buy one. Uh, you can't make them fast enough. At least this is true a few years ago. And he was a guy who went and got an MFA and wanted to be a novelist. And uh, went and started writing. Turns out he's not a very good writer. And he didn't enjoy it very much because you know, writing is being alone in a room, mm-hmm. um, which I'm fine with. That's, that's where I belong, but it's not where he belonged. <laughs> And so he started making knives and he wasn't very good at it, but he got on YouTube and figured out how to get good at it. And uh, I don't know if he makes a lot of money. I think he probably makes an okay living. Um, But he gets up every day and he makes something that is one of the best examples of that particular thing that you can get. And I think there is some real value in that. There's a sense of accomplishment in that. And whether you are someone who is out researching cancer cures or you're someone who's making fancy kitchen knives or you're someone who's detailing a car, um, there's, there's honor and dignity and meaning in work and in being of service to people and of being productive. And I think that we sneer at that too much. We particularly sneer at people who work with their hands, which is really dumb because a lot of these people do make a lot of money, um, do real well for themselves. But even the ones who don't, we should be, I think, more respectful of that. But I've always been confused by um, you know, these guys. They work in offices and they play with spreadsheets and they make $62,000 a year. And, well, they went to college, so there's something. And they go home and they watch television shows about guys who build motorcycles mm-hmm. who make a million dollars a year. Mm-hmm. And they think, well, if that guy had only gone to graduate school, he really could have amounted to something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's just, that's weird, but we're, but we're that way. Um, I just, I, you know, there's a, I read a story a few years ago um, about a, about a guy who was a, 
a federal attorney and uh, in Washington, D.C. His mm-hmm. mom was so proud. He was the first African-American. He was an African-American family, first one in his family to go to college. His mother had worked and slaved away um, to be able to pay for it. He went to a good college. He promised her when he was little that, yes, mom, I'll make something of myself. Yes, ma'am, I'll go to college. Yes, ma'am, I'll, I'll, I'll be an attorney. And he did. And uh, uh, he, he also loved to bake. And he would bake birthday cakes for people and, and everything else. And everybody just loved his cakes. And that's where he really found his joy. Well, as it turns out, he, uh, he kind of became almost addicted to the baking thing. He loved it so much. <laughs> and he ended up in the hospital. And he was so torn. He was Baking working, injuries? <laughs> no. Baking so much all the time. Making cupcakes and cakes for friends and Wouldn't families. And, and he wasn't sleeping. Okay. And he would have to do his work. He'd work till late. And then he'd cook till, you know, bake until 4 o'clock in the morning. Crazy. And then he'd get up. Uh, and he was hospitalized and the doctor said, you have to choose. You have to choose. Are you going to please your mom and do that responsible job over there? Or are you going to enjoy your life and be a baker? And he opened up a shop called Cake Love in, mm-hmm. and left. And his mom was happy. You know, he was just so afraid of saying it. But I think there's a lot of people that can do that and find, find that. But like we said earlier, there's a lot of people that just want to be, they just want to punch in, you know, do their eight hours and punch out. They don't want to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. And the fact is that when you've got a really, really wealthy and enormously productive society like ours, there's, there's room for people who have just regular punch the clock jobs to make a good living and have a good standard of living. Um, one of the things that I think is, is very interesting and strange about our term right now is we spent all this time talking about inequality and I think it's the wrong conversation to have because what we should really care about is what's happening to the absolute standard of living for people at the bottom and how we can bring that up, yes. not how much distance there is between them and the top. But for people at the very top, you know, your Silicon Valley CEOs, your Wall Street CEOs and things like that, and you, you, you know this probably from having been in New York and, and being in that world a little bit, their lives really have gotten strange. Like, uh, their lives are radically different from, you know, people who are top 10%, top 5%, top You look at Charles Murray's stuff, you know, back in the 1960s, the top and the bottom were not that different. Now they are different worlds. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the sort of billionaire and up world is, um, their lives have become really, really alien. I think to a lot of people, including very wealthy people, there's a difference between being wealthy and being like that guy. And, um, what's the difference? It's that there's um, there's there's literally nothing you can't have, and your time gets taken care of. Um, you know, you don't do things like you don't fly first class. You get an airplane, mm-hmm. and uh, it's on call, and it goes when you want to go. And if you want to go, I want to go to the top of Mount Everest next Wednesday and have a picnic. Done. Mm-hmm. There's a helicopter. We'll go do it. Mm-hmm. And. Um, I think that also causes some of this resentment. There aren't that many of those people, but their lives are so alien and they get so um, insulated from people. It's the Gwyneth Paltrow syndrome of, you know, her drinking some smoothie in the morning that costs $800 to make or something. And you should try this mm-hmm. too. Right. It's really nice. And uh, I saw I, Jim Carrey. It was a Jim Carrey. And no, it was what Robin Williams, because I thought who else could get away with this but Robin Williams? He was on television and uh, he was promoting something. And he said, you know, I come to New York once in a while. And he said, he's on the Today Show, 
And he said, uh, you guys, you know, you invited me to come out. So I came out and I, I come here and, and he said, you always hear talk about homelessness. I just got, I just left the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. There are rooms, uh, there's huge buildings. The whole park is surrounded. Why aren't these people just, you know, staying in the, uh, in the Mandarin Hotel? <laughs> uh, obviously joking, but that's, uh, there are some people who are really like that. Yeah. They don't understand it at all anymore. I played a prank on my dad with that. He was going to take a cruise that was leaving out of New York. He'd never been there before. And he wanted me to recommend a hotel for him. He's very cheap. And I said, well, there's a place actually over close to where the cruise ships live. Leave. It's called the Mandarin Oriental. You should call him up. <laughs> I think they quoted him $3,500 for oh, a yeah, it's crazy. Like yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, he was not unamused. <laughs> uh, he stayed out in a La Quinta out by, yeah, the, right. uh, by LaGuardia. But yeah. um yeah, and their lives really are very, very different. I think that's kind of an interesting story, and it's an interesting break in that, um, you know, Cornelius Vanderbilt wasn't as alienated from the mainstream of American life mm-hmm. as the top executive at Google or Facebook or, or someplace like that is. And we have, we have a better life than, Van, uh, than Vanderbilt did yeah. in his age. I mean, Calvin Coolidge's son died of a scraped toe. He was president of the United States of America. He had access to the best health care you could get in the world. Um, I have uh, I have a letter from um, uh, from Booker T. Washington. He's writing one of his speeches, and so it's it's a, a whole bunch of his notes that he's trying to put together. And one of the lines in it that I just thought was astounding. He said, uh, "Even the poorest among us that were slaves, we have a better education than the son of the president of the United States when we were slaves." And this is about 1910. He wrote that. Yeah. You know, 50 years, 50 years later, his, he has a better education, better living conditions than the son of the president. Yeah. But it is funny how that world changes. Um, there's a guy I know who's a, he's a very wealthy guy, finance guy, and he lives in a very fancy place. And a guy knocked on his door apparently a couple of months ago, said, I want to buy your house. And the guy says, my house isn't for sale. The guy says, I'll give you a hundred million dollars. This is a real story. Real story. Yeah. That's something that only happens now at this point in history. You know, people don't just go knocking on strangers' doors. No, I, I think we might be living in the Great Gatsby times. I think some of these big houses and things. I might... think we're far more gilded than the Gilded Age was. Uh, I think we, uh, yeah. But I think it goes farther down the ladder. How so? Uh you had maybe what six people that were in the Vanderbilt category at that time, and they would build these houses. I mean, you you look at the the Vanderbilt's mansion. Mm-hmm. There's nothing like the Vanderbilt's mansion. You know what I mean? You go down to uh, what is it, North Carolina? Um, I can't remember the name of the house down there. That huge sprawling yeah. mansion. There's nothing like that anywhere around it. You yeah. know what I mean? I um, once visited the uh, Liberace house in Las Vegas. and <laughs> uh, see that. Well, he was at one point the highest paid entertainer in the United States of America. Was he really? Yeah. And just, I mean, we live differently now. And his house is kind of gross. I mean, partly it's because he's Liberace, you know. Oh, this. Um, yeah. Graceland is a dump. Graceland. It's a dump. Yeah, Graceland is a dump. You it's would, a dump. Kind of low ceilings and stuff. Right. And, you uh, walk into that house and you're really underwhelmed. Yeah. I, at least I was. Yeah, being and it re- wasn't that different. Like the shag carpeting was like the shag carpeting that I had growing up in my house when I was little. You know, I was gold. What color was yours? 
Green, green. olive green. Uh, ooh, olive yeah, green, not olive avocado green. green. Oh no, uh, no avocado green. Yeah, okay, avocado yeah. green. That's a good but, shake. Uh, yeah, that's a good shake. But Elvis had it in his. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't. There was that time period where it still was like that. But the Gilded Age, they were. You couldn't relate to even a phone. You know what I mean? Or, a, yeah. you know, you couldn't relate to uh, the way they lived because it took a hundred people to make it work. Now, yeah. I mean, I knew, I, I felt like I really had, um, was really living a posh life when I could have an assistant that just did whatever I needed. To, you know, when she came to me one day, because you I, weren't wrong about that. Glenn. Right, I know, I know. <laughs> but you know what? Now, Alexa. Yeah, that's true. You know, now now the average person can have an assistant. Right. It you can have, have somebody running to go for, you know, go for groceries. Okay, Alexa, I need this, 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 this. Send it to the house. Done. Yeah. No, that stuff is amazing. And, uh, yeah, you don't have a chauffeur. You have Uber. And you don't yeah. have, you know, full-time staff. You've got these, these other things. And right. I think that's good and helpful and really has radically improved how people uh, live. It's a funny thing. We were in uh, France right after we got married on our, our honeymoon. And my wife likes this particular French tea. And so we went looking for it at stores. And we couldn't find it anywhere in, in, in France where we were. And so she ended up ordering it from Amazon from some company in Portugal that gets it to Texas while we're, you know, on the highway uh, and driving think somewhere. Of that. Yeah. Think of that. I, when we were going to Australia, my son and I went and he's 15 and I'm like, Australia, it's on the other side of the planet. My wife said as we were leaving, hey, make sure you call me when you get there. She also said, uh, text me when you're in the plane. And, and, and I thought, this used to be like going to Australia. I may not see you again. Right. You know what I mean? Don't cry, kids. Daddy will be home in two years. One of those Civil War letters. Dear Cordelia. <laughs> yeah, right. We have landed in South <laughs> Right. Yeah. And now you're just like 15 hours and you're there. A mere 15 hours. That's crazy. Yeah. No, that's true. Um, and so when I first started a... college, like no one had ever sent an email, really. I mean, some people had, but it wasn't a normal thing. And there wasn't web browsers and things like that, which really makes me feel like an old dinosaur saying that stuff. Are you ready now. for this? I yeah. used to, ha- I was on the air late in my radio career saying that's dot com, not D O T, but period C O M. Right, yeah. Um, so these things really have changed the way we live. And um, I think that, yeah, that, that weird alienation of the upper, 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 upper class has had an outsized cultural effect. There aren't that many of those people, but the fact that they exist is sort of like if you suddenly discovered that there really were dinosaurs living on an island off the coast of Costa Rica, um, it'd just be a different conception of what the world is and what it's like. And they just have, I think, I think very strange lives. But we don't appreciate the material progress that everyone else has gotten because we're just used to it. We're just like, well, of course life gets better at this dizzying pace every year, year after year. But that's not really the case. I mean, it doesn't happen by accident. You know, I mean, it, it, it's now kind of set in stone to where you're, we're not going to be, by 2030, you won't be able to keep up with the amazing news. Yeah. You just won't be able to keep up. And we're already seeing it. Every week, there's something you're like, I mean, there's something that's crazy. And you're like, we did what? But there's other things that you're, that you're like, wait, 
China landed on the dark side of the moon. When did that? I didn't even know that. I mean, there's crazy stuff that is happening that is remarkable. And the yeah. closer we get to the singularity in 30, uh, 2030, it's you're going to hear cancer's gone. You know, uh, cerebral palsy uh, cure. You can, you know. We'll you be can, telling our grandkids, there are poor children in China who only get to land on the dark side of the moon. You know, it's going to be uh, it's going to be crazy. You know, there's a, there's a story that people who um, who came to adulthood before the automobile became very common, a lot of them learned to drive, but they never really learned to drive well. They never really got used to it. And it was always an effort for them. They just weren't native to it. And every now and then now I walk around and see someone who's 19 typing with their thumbs at 600 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. We're not members of the same species yeah, because no. my thumbs can't do that. And um, so, yeah, these things are going to get stranger and stranger, I think in shorter periods of time will become more significant, I think. So people who were born 10 years after me just really never knew a world without the internet. That was just part of their world. People born 20 years after me, uh, certainly, they are digital natives in a way that, that, that will never be. So it's interesting to think of what will happen to the people who were born 20 years after them. And some, some people will be a year or two, they're going to be just radical changes in the world. Well, that's all Hopefully we good to ones. Do is, well, We just need Elon Musk to give us all the uplink, and then we can all understand it. And- and understand it in any language that we want to because we're all part of the Borg. <laughs> I like him because he's Im- he's embraced it. He's like, yeah, I'm a Bond villain. Is I'm going he, with is it. Is he not <laughs> like the billionaire that you'd like to be? He's living the he's life fun. of... Yeah, he's living the life that I would want to... You know, if you had that kind of money, you'd be like, yeah, and you know what? We're going to Mars. You know, he just... Does it and he embraces it and he yeah. doesn't care. He's smart enough too. Yeah, and that's the reason to have those sorts of resources, right? Because I mean, like you can buy six hundred Ferraris, sure. But mm-hmm. I mean, what's the point? What's the return after the sixth or seventh? Yeah. You know? I mean, I've got eleven at home myself, but, uh, <laughs> but twelve would seem like a lot. Yeah. And uh, but no, I mean, the, the great thing about that kind of Silicon Valley um, ethos is that yeah, there's a lot of money to be made, and they like being rich. These guys like being rich, but it's also this. Let's do something cool. Let's do something no one's done before. And I think I that think, is just enormously valuable and admirable. I think uh, uh, I don't like what uh, uh, what Bill Gates does with all of his money, but he changed the world. He made my life a lot better. I think Steve Jobs was an absolute jerk. Uh, he tried to get me fired at Fox. Fine. Did he really? Yeah. But I love Apple products. I yeah. love what they've done. Um, you know, I wrote an obituary for him when he died and people gave him grief for not giving away a lot of money to charity. He and, changed the world. Yeah. That's what I pointed out at the time. It's like, if you want to look at his good works and what he gave to the world, it's right there. He just yeah. happened to make money doing it. So losing money. doing Right. It. I think capitalism when it's done right is the greatest charity of all, because if it's done right, you're sitting at home going, what is it that I could make that would make people's life? What do they need? Yeah. Hayek explained it in exactly that language. That the genius of the market is that what it really does is allow us to discover the most valuable ways to serve other people. Yes. And um, we often, when we talk about capitalism, we emphasize the competitive nature of it because that's Americans. And we're like, you know, it's doggy dog and all that sort of stuff. But what's really remarkable about it is the, the cooperative aspect of it, where we now have this thing where we've got just worldwide economic material cooperation among people who don't speak the same languages, whose countries don't like each other very much, who don't have the same economic incentives. 
but they do these remarkable things together. And, um, you know, if you went back and tried to explain to some, you know, medieval British king who was getting ready to invest half of his kingdom's assets in ships to keep the lines of trade open, well, our problem in our country is that all the people from all the world bring us all their best stuff at their own expense, and they lay it down at our feet, and they don't charge us enough money for it. And we're really upset by this. We need to think of a way to make the stuff we buy from other people from all over the world a little more, more expensive, expensive because we're victimized by low prices and lots of selection. <laughs> try explaining that to Napoleon or right. Julius Caesar or yeah. Henry II. Yeah. You know, it's just not going to happen. Or worse yet, your grandchildren. <laughs> yes. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you. The uh, name of the book is The Smallest Minority, Independent Thinking in the Age of Mob Politics. Kevin Williamson. Just a reminder, I'd love you to rate and subscribe to the podcast and pass this on to a friend so it can be discovered by other people.